This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. This is Taylor Stevens, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt, one word at a time. So Taylor, I hear that your culture, cultural education has finally caught up to mine because you've seen the, the original <laughs> version of Ghostbusters. I don't think I've caught up. I don't think I'll ever catch up. But yes, I saw the original movie of Ghostbusters. And um, so for anybody who's just sort of kind of catching up here for the first time, don't judge. I was raised in the cult. I was deprived of a lot of pop culture stuff. And slowly over time, I, I will come back and, and watch things just to, you know, see what I missed. And it's it's really rather a fascinating experience doing that. And uh, that's kind of our chit-chat, but it also is something that we're going to kind of extend and talk about a little bit more because um, Steve and I got to talking about this a bit. And uh, my impression of Ghostbusters was like, you know, it's it's not bad. It, it held up pretty well, mostly, um, to, to time, right? Because times change. And not only do our our Cultural expectations change in terms of what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. Uh, storytelling itself has changed a lot. Movies, have, the way movies are told is so different now than even whenever that movie came out, which in my mind was just like, you know, maybe 15 years ago, but in reality is probably closer to 30. 1984. Oh, God. Yes. That was such a long oh, time closer ago. Closer to 40. Wow. So, you know, I I often will. So go that's back why and watch. you didn't see it. It had nothing to do with the cult. You weren't even born then. Oh, you're so sweet. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll run with that, won't we? <laughs> so, um, you know, I do this sometimes where, where I'll go and I'll watch older movies, and it's not like I'm really not into it. I'm not doing it because I'm excited to see them. I'm more like this is part of a cultural zeitgeist that I miss. And these movies are like, there's all these references to them. And I just, I just want to see what they are, but very rarely do I feel like I came out of watching that movie entertained. So I can give you some examples, uh, breakfast club, 16 candles, fast times at Ridgemont high. I, I, you know, I, I watched them and I was like, okay, all right. I, I've seen what everybody else has seen, but, uh, you know, at this day and age, you know, they, they just don't really hold up well. And sometimes they're really rather cringe and fast times at Ridgemont high, for example, I, I couldn't, I was just like, this is awful. How did, how did this become so popular? But in some of them, I've seen documentaries about the makings of them as well. And I understand that, you know, Fast Times, for example, that was at the time it was the first movie, that big movie that had ever been made that focused entirely on teenagers. The parents were hardly in the picture at all. 
it was all about the teens and what they were experiencing and their just everyday life stuff. And it kicked off this huge wave of teen focused movies. So like, okay, okay, I can get that. Uh, the reason I don't get it is only because I didn't live it. I, I was in a different world, same age bracket, same environment, just different world, right? So I get it. But it, it can be a little um, interesting watching films like that without having any of the cultural experience or emotional attachment that would have come from watching it at the age they were made for at the time that they were made. And so I guess in a way we're talking about stories and stories holding up to time. And that's sort of where our conversation was going. And that's our chick chat. And now I have no idea what Steve is going to do. So well, hi, Steve. What, now <laughs> I've got to, I've got to ask you, I've got to ask you this. Um, some of the movies that you've seen, I, well, all of the ones you talked about, I've seen, um, I don't remember being crazy about a, a, a lot of the movies that you're talking about were John Hughes movies. And he just made like an explosion of movies in the, in the mid eighties, early to mid eighties, all about high school kids. And they were wildly popular. And by the time those were coming out, I was in my mid twenties. So probably not the ideal audience for them, but they were, they were fun. My favorite movie of that group of movies was Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Have you seen that one? Okay. Yes. I, I recently watched that one too. So did, did you my, like that? My kids were actually the ones. Yeah, I would say that one held up a little better than the others. And I'd have to really think about why. And I only watched it because my kids made me watch it. They're like, oh my God, this is so good. So it's like the, it skipped a generation or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you um, can't really count yourself as a generation. That's <laughs> true. What? Um, but uh, you know, it wasn't as dumb as I thought it would be, and I think that why that one held up a bit more to me than the others did was because it had. The point behind it was a lot broader than just teenagers running wild or teenagers talking about how much their parents suck or whatever, in that it was really about seizing the day and living your life and not conforming and all of that. So it, it had some some themes that carried over past high school, I suppose, maybe. I don't know. I haven't really thought about it a lot. And I hope I didn't just open my mouth and insert my foot. But yes, I, I have seen... There's Bueller's Day Off. Okay. And I, I do think there's a thing, um, I and I don't think it's a generational thing for some of these movies. It, it almost seems like it's like a 10 or 15 year period where people of a certain age have their favorite movies and they probably watch these movies during, that let's say, the formative period of, of their lives. And so they're very impactful. And and they remember them and they go back and watch them and they see them they see them fondly. So I think we probably have to be careful <laughs> in making fun of somebody's yeah, favorite. Don't movie. don't insult anybody. Yeah. But I think the same holds true for books too. Like well, I, let, I think let, it's different. Before go we ahead, get into before we get into books, I, I just want to finish with this one thing. We were Julie and I were at dinner with two other couples on Friday night. 
And somehow the conversation got to movies. And uh, one of the couples was like 15 years younger than me. And the other maybe 18 years younger than me. So less than a generation. And the movies that they were talking about as fantastic, every single one of them, I just thought, oh my gosh, that was a horrible movie. I kept Do you my have mouth any shut. Titles? No, and I'm, I'm not going there. But okay. there were all these movies that were very important to them when they were in their late teens, early 20s. And, you know, for me, I was in my 30s, some somewhere in my 30s, maybe late 30s. And some of them I knew of, but would never in a thousand years watch kind of things. So I, I suspect that each generation has these these movies that they love. And every so often there's something like you talk about where your kids now go back and watch some of these things where it, it the story for a young person holds up well enough that it's still engaging 40 years later. Yeah. And I think possibly one of the reasons why Ferris Bueller, for example, holds up in a way that 16 Candles doesn't is because there was just so much more rampant sexism and misogyny and stuff like that in on screen back then. And the, today's generation has rightfully a lot less tolerance for that. And they're not going to find it entertaining. And I think Ferris Bueller just didn't have quite as much of it as some of the other stories did. Uh, but I think also, like, movies are so much... It only takes two or three hours to watch a movie, and it takes a full day, depending on the person, to read a book, maybe longer. Some Sometimes books can spread out for a week or longer. And so for that reason, I think, you know, more of us will have seen a given movie than have seen a specific book. But there are also generational books like Harry Potter for example um there are there's a whole generation of people that Harry Potter is just simply part of their childhood they yes. there it is as foundational to their childhood as some of these movies were to the generation above them and like me i have no connection to it whatsoever i i didn't really read the books i've only read one of them actually until much 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 later and I didn't really dig it. I was like, okay, whatever. And, you know, I've seen some of the movies and I'm not even a real big, like, fan of the movies either. Not like I dislike them, but I'm just like, okay, whatever. I will never have that connection to the books in, or the stories or the characters in the same way that those who read it during that foundational transitional period of their childhood did. And so whether it's movies or books i think the concept is still the same that these the stories connected with the audience at a specific age and it's an age of tumult when you yourself are trying to find your place in the world you're trying to just sort of get through school and avoid all the, you know all the, you know i didn't go to school but i have kids who went to school so you know <laughs> i know about that too and uh, you know, it's just this real tumultuous time in your life. And so I think whatever whatever it was that's going on in your life that you connect with at that time, be it mu movies, books, music, whatever, it sticks with you. And it becomes part of your 
transitional experience into adulthood. And it will always, like, even if you no longer care for the author, it's really hard to separate that from what that book meant to you at that age in your life. So I think that's what I'm missing in a lot of these movies or books or whatever is just I never had that same emotional connection to them because I was so far outside the realm of being part of what was going on at the time. But it does make me think of it in terms of storytelling of, you know, obviously I don't write books for that specific age group, you know, that those tumultuous years. But that doesn't mean that I don't have fans from that age bracket or that my books never get read from that age bracket. It's just there there are fewer readers in that age bracket than than aren't. But it, it does make me think about that. Like what what is it that allows characters and stories to connect so deeply with such a large audience. And I don't have the answer to that. If I did have the answer, I would I would have JK Rowling money. <laughs> and I don't. <laughs> but but it's an interesting question. And I think that as a storyteller, it's a question that you want to be asking yourself when you write your stories, like to obviously there are there are aspects of the human condition that show up through all of history that you could talk if you if you had a chance to talk to somebody who was living 5000 years ago and you in your modern world you would still find that thread connecting you you know there's the family family drama um the struggle for survival the need to belong the that sense of being an outsider uh, not knowing your place, trying to find your place. I think these are sort of universal themes. And if you, I, anyone who is writing stories focuses so much on the plot and, and what's happening in the story that you forget to connect to some form of universal experience, doesn't matter how exciting it is or how you know, well-written it is, if there's nothing to connect with emotionally, it's just not going to have the same level of impact that a very similar story that taps into that universal human condition would have. And I think that's what separates classics or or stories that hold through time is that universal experience that still still grabs you, even if the storytelling is dated, even if there are elements of the story that just don't don't hold up at all. When you can still connect, still find that thing that connects, that that makes the story ageless regardless. And I think as storytellers, that's something that we should always try and hold in the back of our minds because that's what's going to give our stories a greater depth, even though we're just writing entertainment and, you know, just just putting it out there for fun. It it is ultimately ultimately it is the universal experience, uh, the emotional experience that gives the story its its weight, gives the characters their depth and whatnot, and and you can see it, you can see it play out on the screen from these types of things. And I just thought it was it's it's, it's just background. It's interesting. The the it's just an interesting way to think about it. Is all. 
there's this series of books that I'm in the process of rereading now. This is probably the third time through it for me. I also have all of the books on audio, and I listen to them from time to time. They were written, first book was written in 2014, and I recommended it to a female friend not that long ago. And it's like, I love these books. Check them out. You, you may you may like them. And she came back and said, I really like this, but you could never get away with writing a book like that today. And this is, <laughs> the first book was written in 2014. 14, it's not that, it's, only, it's this, not even 10 yeah, years it's ago. 2023. And the issue for her was the description of the main character. And the author was the main character female, and they main, were talking all about main them. characters female. But <laughs> it course. was not. It was. It was not. Um, let's say talking about individual body parts or anything like that. It was right, talking right. about her grace and her natural athletic ability, which played a big part in the the entire series. But every time something would happen, there would be a new uh, a new character who would watch the the main character do something and would talk about how graceful and beautiful she was. And how could someone yeah. who's so graceful and beautiful also be smart and do all these other things? Oh and, God, I feel myself cringing already. Yes. But there are also in every book when I'm listening to them, there are scenes that even the third or fourth time through them give me chills. And there are scenes that bring me to tears. And so I'll never get away from these. But it's just interesting how times can change so quickly with some where if if he just if the if the author were to just go back and rewrite all of the scenes where there were character description and just change them slightly, um, it might hold up better. But it, it's an yeah, interesting that's a, that's a real interesting perspective. And, and I think you're right. And it, that kind of actually ties into the other thing that we were talking about before we started recording, because we were also talking about character description. And it, it really dovetails quite nicely into that conversation. I don't know if you want to if you want to talk about that or not. Well, we we started I was I was talking to to Taylor about a, a book that I would read over the weekend or really it was just like a scene that I'd read over the weekend where I I as as longtime listeners will know, I read a lot and I read quickly. And so when you read quickly, you tend to read like by paragraph and, and, you know, like you see a paragraph and you get the meaning from the paragraph and you go to the next paragraph. And so I read what I thought was the description of a character. And then let's say three or four chapters later in the book, there was another description of the character that was completely contradicted what I understood the original description to be. So I had to go back to the original description and I had misread it where the person, uh, the, the author described this woman as having a short blunt haircut or a blunt haircut or something. Anyway, I interpreted this to mean this woman was short and stocky. And that's that's just what I went all the way through, you know, in, until three chapters later, when she was described as tall and lean, let's say. 
And I'm like, wait a minute, how could you go from short and stocky to tall and lean? So I go back and it was just the description of the haircut. And it it got me thinking how important it is to be either precise or to not give too much information for readers like me who are will just read one thing and interpret it as this is the description of this character. And, you know, later on, it just took me completely out of the story and trying to figure out what had happened, what did I get wrong, and, and went back. And when Taylor and I were talking, we I, I mentioned her, and we've talked about this before in the show, her description of Monroe, which is very sparse, yet in my mind, I have a very clear image of Monroe that has stayed consistent through all the books. And I wondered what the difference it was. And I thought, you know, that might be a, a topic of conversation for the show. And that's kind of where we're at. So when we were, I'm just, I'm going to stop saying, and we were talking, we'll just pretend we're starting fresh here. So uh, when we've talked on this show before about character description and how you get one shot at description, the first time your character is introduced, you, that is your opportunity to say everything that needs to be said about how the character looks. And the reason for that is that exactly what happened with Steve, you're going to create a mental image in your head, your, your audiences of what your character looks like. And that image is going to develop based on whatever amount of information arises in that first introduction of the character. So in in this instance that Steve is talking about, it, it was his misreading that caused the, the, the wrong picture to show up in his head. But as an author, you have to account for that. You have to account for the very real, not just possibility, but high probability that readers are not going to catch every single word that you're writing. And when it comes to description, the the reason this became an issue for the reader is because the author then later added more to what had already been told. So he described hair first, and then however much later described body. Now, the two separate parts of the whole were not contradicting each other. It wasn't the author's fault in terms of providing contradictory information. It's just that he let too much time go between one part of the description and another. And in that time, a misreading allowed a completely different mental image to develop. If this character in question, uh, if it did not matter the size or the shape of body, then if the if that second part of the description had never entered the equation, and all Steve had was that misinterpretation of short blunt cut to short blunt body, which is a very easy thing to do when the words are are, are kind of that descriptive. Um, you, your your brain is just going to throw images at you. There's nothing you can do about it. If if he'd never added the second part and Steve would have gone through the whole story imagining the character as being short and or blunt or whatever, 
then it wouldn't have mattered because the character's height or athleticism or whatever wasn't part of the equation. And it would have been fine. Doesn't matter if he has a different idea in his head of what the author has of the character in, in his head, as long as it's not interfering with what's happening on the page in terms of characters, the way the character interacts with the world, the way the character interacts with objects or what have you. In the case of Monroe, part of that conversation was how lots of stuff does get added along the way to Monroe's description, but it's never to Monroe herself. I'm not changing her height. I'm not changing her body shape. I'm not changing her her face or her hair or the color of her eyes. She's morphing into other characters in terms of being the chameleon. And so even though I'm not saying this is her body shape, when you have a character that's capable of passing themselves off as a young younger man, a female character who can pass herself off as a younger male, you, you're obviously dealing with a character who's androgynous in shape and form and tall enough in order to, to do that. And so I'm pretty sure, not 100% sure, but pretty sure that from the get-go, in the very first story, these aspects of Monroe's physicality were established from the start. Didn't describe her height. I didn't describe in detail how she looked, but the story showed it by what she was capable of doing. Now, not not all audience members will come to the same conclusion. When you have a character who's passing themselves, a female character who's passing themselves off as a young male, the assumption is that they've got to be tall enough, they've got to be this, they've got to be that. But if that character's introduction to the world falls right on the heels of a character that they keep getting compared to, and that character they're being compared to happens to be short and petite, then it doesn't matter what you put on the page. <laughs> the audience is going to carry over from a whole other world an image in their head of what your character is. There's nothing you can do about that. I'm sorry. But you can try and head it off by at least being consistent in your descriptions and consistent in how that character interacts with and presents themselves to the world. I never really describe Monroe's race in the story. A lot of readers, I mean, her skin is lighter than, than obviously somebody who uh, is of African descent. But the very fact that she was born in Africa, never mind to missionaries, that part wasn't taken, it doesn't get, doesn't get taken into account. The very fact that she's born in Africa is often enough for some readers to believe that she herself has very, very dark skin. Does this matter to me? No, not really. I don't really care enough to bother to correct them. But where it does come into play psychologically, and this goes deep enough that most audience members will never consider this, but I have to as a storyteller, is that if Monroe looked like everyone around her in the country where her value was being able to understand language that everyone assumed that she couldn't understand, it wouldn't work if she looked like she belonged there. 
The reason that everybody assumes she can't understand the languages being spoken around here, she clearly obviously looks like she doesn't belong there, mm. in which case she can't be of African descent. She can be of any other descent, but not from that part of Africa. But that's not something most people will consider. That is a very, very deep layer of analysis in understanding your character and how your character interacts with and moves through the world and how the world responds to your character. And I think that aside from the audience members who came to Monroe with an image of Elizabeth Salander in mind, or came to Monroe thinking that because she was born in Africa, she must be from Africa. Aside from those, the vast majority of readers were able to intuit between the lines simply because I, as the creator, had thought those things through. And so they are consistent all the way through the storytelling, regardless of if there's an actual description saying, and Monroe has this racial background, comes from this, this type of background, which doesn't exist in the stories. So it's the consistency, the character consistency, and, and of how that character interacts with the world, that even though the descriptions itself don't change, when new material gets added on, and we see her in a different guise or a different form or interacting a different way, it doesn't clash or it shouldn't clash with the image that's already established in the reader's minds because I've thought it all through ahead of time. So we know that you get one shot at description, but it's not just the description. It's also an awareness of who your character is and how they interact with the world. And you don't want to have a bunch of people marveling about how graceful they are and they're still able to do all, all the things that that are rough and hardcore. Um, it is it is simply being consistent in how that character interacts with the world and how the character interacts with them because all of that, how we interface as individuals interface with the world and how the world interfaces with us it, it it does it changes to based based on how we look and it and how we carry ourselves and how we present ourselves and so two people can have completely opposite experiences under the same circumstances simply because of how they are interfacing with the people around them and how those people perceive them so you as an author if you really want to avoid those types of reader grit i guess is or audience grit it's the easiest way to describe it is to make sure you understand in your own head who your character is not just personality wise but how their body actually moves through the world how their personality moves through the world and if you keep that consistent then and you you get your one shot your one first shot at at any actual description that you care to provide, then you're not going to run into those same types of um, hiccups along the way with your audience, even if they happen to misread something that you said in the description. I think that makes sense. Uh, question for you. Um, yeah. Does it make sense from, a, from an author perspective 
to think about the longevity, the 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 long-term value of your book. So uh, there are a lot of a lot of books that are written to have a value for a couple of years. And then there are other books that are written, they're not written to have a value for a longer period of time, but the the, the sense is that this will still be interesting 20 years from now, um, sort of like the movie discussion we were having earlier. I, I, I see, because I work for a publishing company and we see a lot of books that come through, um, I will see some romance books where the descriptions of the characters are so precise and so timed to today's values of beauty that um, it, it's very unlikely that those values will be the same in even five years. So do we need should we take that into account when we're we're building these things? So if you're writing romance, maybe you need to be very specific with body type, body, you know, six-pack abs, muscles, tattoos, uh, hair done a certain way, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that five years from now might just be so wildly out of style that someone would just put the book down if they were reading it because it's it just doesn't appeal to them. I I would say it entirely depends. It depends on so many things. It depends on what your goals are as a storyteller. Like some authors, their focus is just to write as much as fast as possible. And they themselves don't expect to see anything from that work beyond six months or even a year out. They're not writing a legacy they're writing entertainment at a volume pace it would make no sense to spend extra time trying to write for the future when you're not even writing for a year from now um it depends on your your purpose for writing in the first place and most of us who write fiction we're not writing philosophy or, you know, going out there to create highbrow art. We're just entertainers, storytellers, and we're just trying to write an engaging, romping, good tale. I don't think, at least I don't personally look at my stuff and go, oh, 20 years from now, are people still going to be reading my books? I mean, I'm lucky if they're still reading them two years from now because, you know, the world moves so fast and that's just not how things happen, you know? Um, there's just not a lot of... The, the world does not treat creators with a lot of value. It's just get us as much content as fast as you can for as cheap as you can. That's sort of the de facto attitude right now. I don't even know if we'll still be reading books in 20 years. So I think it would be a mistake to be all like trying to predict the future of, of what is going to hold and what's not going to hold because you're writing for your audience today. It needs to resonate with your audience today. But I think you can avoid a lot. Like if you're if you're not writing on pure volume, 
And let's say you're someone who writes very slowly like me, and you're hoping that the first book in the series will still hold up when people are on the 10th book of the series, knock on wood, fingers crossed we ever get that far. Then in that sense, you can maybe sort of avoid some of the worst pitfalls by just treating your characters with respect, treating them like they're people. And if if you're going to to objectify a, a person, if, if you're of the mindset that it's fine to objectify women or men or anyone in real life, there's nothing you can do to make your books any different. You're going to come, that that is going to come through on the page, no matter how careful you try to be. But if you're someone who actually tries to envision your characters as human beings, and you treat them with the same respect you would treat any human being, whether they are an unhoused person or a very wealthy person, whether they are uh, childless or they are a parent of nine children, regardless of how different their life circumstances are from you, regardless of whether you agree with their choices or not, regardless of if they are opposite political affiliations, opposite religious affiliation. And, uh, opposite socioeconomic background. If you can, if you can incorporate respect for humanity in all characters, regardless of hero or villain or whatnot, straight across the board, then you have a much higher chance of your stories holding up to time. Simply because you're treating your characters like how you would treat a decent human being. And you're avoiding a lot of stuff. So we don't know what 20 years from now is going to be considered cringe or, you know, <laughs> like, well, that that really didn't hold up or whatever. But you don't really have to worry about that if you're not out there trying to preach a p- particular point of view or if you're not objectifying your characters or creating cardboard cutouts because you need an easy villain or or whatnot i don't know if that's a good answer but that's the best one i've got (laughs) i think that's a really good answer to a really vague question i'm i am so impressed that you came up with that off the top of your head all right so that is our show for this week we thank you guys very much for being with us again and we will be back with you again soon thanks for being here guys we'll see you next week